If you would, open a Bible with me to 2 Corinthians chapter 7. 2 Corinthians chapter 7, where we'll be centering our time of study this morning. 2 Corinthians chapter 7. Good to see you this morning. We have a good number of visitors with us. Thank you so much for being here. We want you to know that we're glad that you're here. If you're traveling, we are glad that you stopped by. If you're from here in the area, you'd like to know more about this group or there's something that brought you in today that we could help you with, we'd just love to talk about that. So please just let us know about that. Uh, like Zach, I have to say I appreciate that I had the opportunity this week to go home, back to Texas, and to be with our family, both my family and Sarah's family. And uh, I know that that's a joyful time for us. Uh, I was just thinking... For some, it is uh, a sad time, uh, maybe because of some losses, some empty spaces at the table, uh, or maybe there are just situations that are going on in life that make this not as joyous as it would otherwise be. And it's just a time that I think it is important for us to remember one another and to remember how much we have been given by God, that we have so much to be thankful for. So I trust and hope that you had a, a good holiday week this week. I want to begin in 2 Corinthians 7 and verse 8. 2 Corinthians 7 and verse 8, the text says... For even if I made you grieve with my letter, I do not regret it, though I did regret it. For I see, that letter, I see that that letter grieved you, though only for a while. As it is, I rejoice, not because you were grieved, but because you were grieved into repenting. For you felt a godly grief, so that you suffered no loss through us. For godly grief produces a repentance that leads to salvation without regret, whereas worldly grief produces death. So Paul says to the Corinthians, I'm glad I made you upset. I'm glad I broke your heart. And what Paul is saying is that not all broken hearts are bad. Not all grief is bad. And he distinguishes between godly grief and worldly grief. That godly grief is really good because it produces something. It leads to repentance. It leads to salvation. And when we get to the end of that process, it may be painful, but we can say, you know, this is worth it. That grief that I experienced... It brought good for me. What I want to do for our time this morning is to spend a little bit of time putting some faces on this passage. I want us to look at some people who experience the kind of grief described here in 2 Corinthians chapter 7. And what we're going to talk about is the power of a broken heart. That sometimes when we have situations in our lives that discourage and distress us, we feel that they're terrible, and we hate the idea that our hearts would be broken. And I want to show you from Scripture that there is a power a broken heart can produce that really is unrivaled. And so in a way, not to say that broken hearts are good, not to say that experience pain is positive, but simply to say that when we do have broken hearts, when we do have hard times, we can see the good in them. Now, the things that we're talking about, it really could be anything. Sometimes our hearts are broken because of circumstances. There are things that happen to us that are none of our fault. Sometimes our hearts are broken by people. They hurt us. Maybe we haven't done anything to deserve it. But sometimes our hearts are broken because we've made mistakes and we've made a mess of things. And so we come to the end of the line and we realize maybe in one pivotal moment just everything that we've done wrong. But whatever it is, it kind of amounts to the same thing, doesn't it? We experience the pain of having our hearts broken. And I want us to see how that pain can bring good things, particularly broken hearts help us to understand our situation and our relationship to God in a better, deeper way. 
So I want to see some things that a broken heart can help me to see. First of all, let's go to the book of 1 Kings. 1 Kings chapter 21. 1 Kings 21. We're going to look in each of these points at a couple of passages and look at a couple of examples with each one. 1 Kings 21 is the first. In 1 Kings chapter 21, the scene here is that we have Ahab, the wicked king of Israel, who has allowed, in fact, kind of incited his wife Jezebel to kill a man named Naboth because Ahab wanted Naboth's vineyard. And so God has finally, at this point, had enough of Elijah. And he um, had enough of Elijah. God's had enough of Ahab. He sends Elijah to Ahab to condemn him. 1 Kings 21 and verse 17. 1 Kings 21 and verse 17. Then the word of the Lord came to Elijah the Tishbite, saying, Arise, go down to meet Ahab, the king of Israel, who is in Samaria. Behold, he is in the vineyard of Naboth, where he has gone to take possession. And you shall say to him, Thus says the Lord, Have you killed and also taken possession? And you shall say to them, Thus says the Lord, In the place where dogs licked up the blood of Naboth shall dogs lick your own blood. Ahab said to Elijah, Have you found me, O my enemy? He answered, I have found you because you have sold yourself to do what is evil in the sight of the Lord. Behold, I will bring disaster upon you. I will utterly burn you up and will cut off from Ahab every male bond or free in Israel. And I will make your house like the house of Jeroboam, the son of Nebat, and like the house of Basha, the son of Ahijah, for the anger to which you have provoked me and because you have made Israel to sin. And of Jezebel, the Lord also said, the dog shall eat Jezebel within the walls of Jezreel. Anyone belonging to Ahab who dies in the city, the dog shall eat. And anyone of his who dies in the open country, the birds of the heavens shall eat. There was none who sold himself to do what was evil in the sight of the Lord like Ahab, whom Jezebel his wife incited. He acted very abominably in going after idols as the Amorites had done, whom the Lord cast out before the people of Israel. And when Ahab heard those words, he tore his clothes and put sackcloth on his flesh and fasted and lay in sackcloth and went about dejectedly. And the word of the Lord came to Elijah the Tishbite, saying, Have you seen how Ahab has humbled himself before me? Because he has humbled himself before me, I will not bring the disaster in his days, but in his son's days I will bring the disaster upon his house. This is a fascinating little passage because Elijah comes to Ahab with the message first, You're going to die. Dogs will lick up your blood. And Elijah just... I'm, I've got to get these guys straight. Ahab... Ahab just seems to brush that off. He's not interested at all. Oh, yeah, I'm going to die, whatever. You're my enemy. But then Elijah says something that gets his attention. Elijah begins to talk about how your house is going to be extinguished. All the people who belong to Ahab are going to be killed. And the ones who are here that are not killed are going to be killed over here. And suddenly, Elijah has Ahab's attention. In fact, he brings up a couple of men. He talks about it will be like the house of Jeroboam or the house of Basha. Ahab knew those names well. Those were the names of the men who used to have dynasties who were then exterminated. And he says, oh, I'm going to be like them. Suddenly Ahab realizes not just that his legacy is at stake. He realizes that the throne is going to move away from his family forever. And then it says he humbled himself, verse 27. And he put on sackcloth and fasted and went about dejectedly. He was sorry his heart was broken. What happens here is that a broken heart helps me see that I'm going to lose it all. That's what Ahab is thinking. Suddenly he realizes how much he stands to lose. If God really is against him, if he really has been as wicked as God thinks he has been and judgment really is coming, you don't want to mess with God about things like this. 
And Ahab is brought up short by the rebuke of Elijah. All the words Elijah said about him personally don't get to him quite as much as when he says, Ahab, do you realize what's going to happen if you keep going? And so Elijah gets through to Ahab and breaks his heart. I can't say that Ahab's repentance was permanent. I wish I could. In the next chapter, we don't really see much more about Ahab and his heart. What we do see is Ahab acting similarly to how he was before when it talks about God's prophets coming to him. So I'm not sure this is a permanent situation, but just for this moment, there is some clarity for Ahab. That's what we're going for. That's the power a broken heart can have. It can bring us clarity to see how much we stand to lose. Go with me to 2 Chronicles 33. 2 Chronicles 33. I want to look at another story of another man who also has a broken heart with the same thought, I'm going to lose everything. He is, though, a little bit more of a stubborn case when it comes to how God appealed to him. 2 Chronicles 33, beginning in verse 1. 2 Chronicles 33 and verse 1, it says, Manasseh was 12 years old when he began to reign, and he reigned 55 years in Jerusalem. And he did what was evil in the sight of the Lord, according to the abominations of the nations whom the Lord drove out before the people of Israel. We're in 2 Chronicles 33, verse 3. For he rebuilt the high places that his father Hezekiah had broken down. And he erected altars to the Baals, and he made Asherah, and worshipped all the hosts of heaven and served them. And he built altars in the house of the Lord, of which the Lord had said, In Jerusalem shall my name be forever. And he built altars for all the hosts of heaven in the two courts of the house of the Lord. And he burned his sons as an offering in the valley of the son of Hinnom, and used fortune-telling and omens and sorcery, and dealt with mediums and with necromancers. He did much evil in the sight of the Lord, provoking him to anger. And the carved image of the idol that he had made, he set in the house of God, of which God said to David and to Solomon his son, in this house and in Jerusalem, which I have chosen out of all the tribes of Israel, I will put my name forever. And I will no more remove the foot of Israel from the land that I have appointed for your fathers, if only they will be careful to do all that I have commanded them, all the law, the statutes, and the rules given through Moses. Manasseh led Judah and the inhabitants of Jerusalem astray to do more evil than the nations whom the Lord destroyed before the people of Israel. So, this is just like a list of the worst things you can do and the things that will most anger God. And Manasseh just checks them off one by one. So God acts. Verse 10. The Lord spoke to Manasseh and to his people, but they paid no attention. Therefore, the Lord brought upon them the commanders of the army of the kings of Assyria, who captured Manasseh with hooks and bound him with chains of bronze and brought him to Babylon. And when he was in distress, he entreated the favor of the Lord his God and humbled himself greatly before the God of his fathers. He prayed to him, and God was moved by his entreaty and heard his plea and brought him again to Jerusalem into his kingdom. Then Manasseh knew that the Lord was God. Verse 15 talks about how Manasseh took away the foreign gods and the idol from the house of the Lord and all the altars that he had built on the mountain of the house of the Lord and in Jerusalem, and he threw them outside of the city. Here is what happens to Manasseh. First, it says God sent messengers. God tried to speak to him. And Manasseh and the people paid no attention to the prophets. But then something else happened. Things got worse. See, he was a level worse than Ahab. Where finally God sent the Assyrians and they took him with hooks and chains. The Assyrians were known for being brutal people and for leading the people by taking chains and running them through the ears and noses of their victims. And they lead the king of Judah into Babylon in chains. And the, the Bible says this in a very casual kind of way. Verse 12, when he was in distress. 
This is about as bad as it can get when you're king. He is humiliated. But Manasseh, in that moment, finally sees what he should have seen all along. That his evil behavior has meant he's going to lose everything. So now Manasseh can change. And he does change. In fact, I would say his change seems to be a bigger deal than Ahab's change. Because when Manasseh changes, there are real changes that happen later. He is brought back to the land and he starts undoing all the evil he had done. Suddenly he says, no more of these idols. Get this out of here. And he gets rid of all the bad things he had done. Now the people still want to do the wrong things. But at least the king isn't leading them in doing the wrong things. That's the power of a broken heart. The power that says, I'm scared. I'm going to lose everything. I've got to get to work. I've got to make this right. And that's what Manasseh does. Here's my point. Sometimes we get blind to the things that we're doing and the way that we're living. Sometimes we just chug along through life and everything seems fine. And we don't realize how close we are to the precipice of our lives being a disaster. And sometimes in those moments, we can learn something by having our world shaken up. By having someone have a hard conversation with us. By losing our money. By encountering adversity like Manasseh did. In our distress, we see things more clearly and we begin to see, now I realize this is not good. I'm headed in a wrong direction. I'm going to lose my marriage. I'm going to lose my kids. I'm going to lose my job. I'm going to go to jail. I'm going to lose everything. And while not all broken hearts mean that we're going to be productive in how we deal with that, at the very least there is clarity that comes because our hearts have been broken and suddenly we see what we did not see before. A broken heart helps us realize that we have things in our life that are worth fighting for. And that we need them and we want them. And so we're going to attack the the problems in our lives with fresh vigor. Because we don't want to lose everything. The second thing, a broken heart helps me see that I've lost my connection to God. Let's go to 2 Samuel chapter 12. 2 Samuel 12. So in 2 Samuel 12, the the story we're jumping in the middle of is the story of David who has committed adultery with Bathsheba. And after the adultery, things only got worse because David has then begun to try to cover up his sin. And he has tried to get Bathsheba's husband back from the front because now Bathsheba has turned up pregnant. And so he tries to make it look like this is Uriah's child instead of his. That doesn't really work. He just ends up wasting a lot of alcohol on Uriah. And then finally, he sends Uriah back to the battlefront with his death warrant in his hand. David becomes a murderer. Then he takes Uriah's wife for his own. And the only thing that's said in all of that account that indicates any kind of judgment is at the very end of chapter 11, 2 Samuel 11, where it says, the thing David did displeased the Lord. That's all. Just that tiny little hint. Maybe not everything is perfect. 2 Samuel 12 and verse 1. And the Lord sent Nathan to David. He came to him and said to him, There were two men in a certain city, the one rich and the other poor. The rich man had very many flocks and herds, but the poor man had nothing but one little ewe lamb, which he brought. And he brought it up, and it grew up with him and with his children. It used to eat of his morsel and drink from his cup and lie in his arms. It was like a daughter to him. 
Now there came a traveler to the rich man, and he was unwilling to take one of his own flock or herd to prepare for the guest who had come to him. But he took the poor man's lamb and prepared it for the man who had come to him. Then David's anger was greatly kindled against the man. And he said to Nathan, As the Lord lives, the man who has done this deserves to die, and he shall restore the lamb fourfold because he did this thing and because he had no pity. Nathan said to David, You are the man. Thus says the Lord, the God of Israel, I anointed you king over Israel. I delivered you out of the hand of Saul. I gave you your master's house and your master's wives into your arms. And I gave you the house of Israel and of Judah. And if this were too little, I would add to you as much more. Why have you despised the word of the Lord to do what is evil in his sight? And so Nathan continues to chew David out. We're going to drop down to verse 13. David said to Nathan, I have sinned against the Lord. At first, David is confident. Did you notice that? Nathan tells this story about this man who takes this poor man's one little lamb. And David says, that guy deserves to die and to pay back four lambs. And Nathan says words that will change David's life forever. He says, you are the man. And I just picture, this is just my thought. I just picture David getting awfully quiet at that moment. And as Nathan goes through the litany of all the things David has done, David sees himself with clarity for the first time. He realizes just how far he has fallen. And he begins to ask that question that so many throughout history, so many in this building have asked. What have I done? And he just says, just that one little sentence, I have sinned against the Lord. And in that moment, he realizes, I've lost my connection to God. You see, this had been happening for a while. You can tell from 2 Samuel 11, from the way the story unfolds. First, it's about David. He's there. He's looking at Bathsheba. He's asking about her. He's calling her to him. And then it, it continues with the cover-up where you're thinking, David, what are you thinking? Here we sit. We can easily see, David, don't do that. Don't do that. Don't do that. But on and on he goes. But David doesn't see it because so often we don't see what's right in front of our face until our hearts are broken. We don't see what's been going on in our relationship with God until finally the bottom falls out of our life and we have to see it because there's no way of looking around it. Go with me to Psalm 51. Psalm 51, listen to how David in this moment speaks out in this song that he writes. I want you to hear particularly that David is not nearly as concerned about his circumstances at this moment as he is with his connection with God. Psalm 51, verse 1. This, of course, is the psalm he writes after Nathan has come to him. Psalm 51 and verse 1. Have mercy on me, O God, according to your steadfast love, according to your abundant mercy. Blot out my transgressions. Wash me thoroughly from my iniquity and cleanse me from my sin. For I know my transgressions. My sin is ever before me. Against you, you only, have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight, so that you may be justified in your words and blameless in your judgment. Behold, I was brought forth in iniquity and in sin did my mother conceive me. Behold, you delight in truth and the inward being and you teach me wisdom in the secret heart. Purge me with hyssop, and I shall be clean. Wash me, and I shall be whiter than snow. David says, I need your forgiveness, God. 
And in fact, he says something really bold there in verse 4. He says, against you, you only have I sinned. Now, that's not technically true. I don't think he's being literal. He had obviously sinned against Uriah, whom he had killed. He had sinned against many people. There was a, a huge amount of destruction and collateral damage from David's actions. But his point is, the thing I'm most concerned about is that I've sinned against you. I have sinned against the Lord. In fact, he says, I feel so consumed with sin, it feels like I was born in it. It feels like I was conceived in sin. It feels like sin has just colored me throughout. And so he says, God, restore me, bless me, reconnect me. Look down in verse 16, Psalm 51 and verse 16. He says, for you will not delight in sacrifice or I would give it. You will not be pleased with a burnt offering. The sacrifices of God are a broken spirit, a broken and contrite heart, O God, you will not despise. See, what God wants is a broken and contrite heart. David, how did your heart get broken? His heart got broken because he had fallen so far from God that finally his circumstances woke him up to it. It took him making a mess of his kingdom. It took him having a baby that's going to die. And all of it, his fault, for him to finally see, I've lost my connection to God. Sometimes we imperceptibly drift from God. In fact, the Bible uses that image of drifting in Hebrews chapter 2 to talk about how things can happen without us really realizing it. Drifting is not something that you're always aware of. We just look up one, at one point and, and we've drifted far away from shore. Suddenly things are not what we assumed they were. But a broken heart can help us see what's really happening. The hard times we experience when we are far from God, are good for us. They are good for us because they wake us up to the need for our connection to God. So for David, there is a lot going on. There's a mess to clean up. In fact, there are problems that will dog his reign for the rest of his life. There will always be problems in his family for the rest of his life and his kids' lives and on and on and on. But David's nearest concern in this moment as he is broken by what he has done, is to say, how do I get back connected to God? And the third thing I want us to see that a broken heart can help us see is that I've been doing it all wrong. Let's go to Acts chapter 2. Acts chapter 2. Sometimes what we really need to see and sometimes what our circumstances and the people around us and hardship can awaken us to is the fact that our whole course of life is going in the wrong direction. And that's what we see in a couple of examples here in the book of Acts. Acts chapter 2. In this chapter, we have a gathering of Jews on the day of Pentecost. This is a major feast in the calendar of the Jew. And the text tells us that there are devout men. And Peter begins to preach to them about Jesus. Many of them, he says, are guilty of killing Jesus. And so in Acts chapter 2 and verse 36, Acts chapter 2 and verse 36, the text says, Let all the house of Israel therefore know for certain that God has made him both Lord and Christ, this Jesus whom you crucified. Now when they heard this, they were cut to the heart and said to Peter and the rest of the apostles, Brothers, what shall we do? And Peter said to them, Repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ, for the remission of, for the forgiveness of your sins, and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. For the promise is for you and for your children, and for all who are far off, everyone whom the Lord our God calls to himself. And with many other words, he bore witness and continued to exhort them, saying, Save yourselves from this crooked generation. 
So those who received his word were baptized, and there were added that day about 3,000 souls. The Bible says that they are cut to the heart. They ask that question, what have I done? Maybe their minds go back to when Jesus was crucified just a few weeks earlier. Maybe they remember saying, crucify him with the rest of the crowd. Maybe they remember watching as he died with that rabble that cried out. Maybe they remember the darkness over the land. Maybe they remember the rumors that came after and started when they started to hear about people saying that he was alive again. And now they look up and they see these men that they know were with Jesus who all talk with these Galilean accents, but instead they're speaking in languages they could never have learned. And suddenly it all comes to a head. And they realize, what have I done? They're cut to the heart. And they ask the question, what shall we do? Do you see how without the broken heart, they don't reach this conclusion, I've been doing it all wrong, and they don't ask the question, what shall we do? Without the broken heart, they're just going to sit and say, huh, what a weird day we're having today. These guys are talking funny. Maybe they're drunk. But when the heart is broken, when the heart is assaulted, suddenly we're ready to change. Suddenly we're ready to take that moment and say, maybe I've got this all wrong. Maybe I'm doing the wrong things. Maybe I'm on the wrong side of God. Go with me to Acts chapter 9. Acts chapter 9. Acts 9, beginning in verse 1, it says, But Saul, still breathing threats and murder against the disciples of the Lord, went to the high priest and asked him for letters to the synagogues at Damascus, so that if he found any belonging to the way, men or women, he would bring them bound to Jerusalem. Now as he went on his way, he approached Damascus, and suddenly a light from heaven shone around him. And falling to the ground, he heard a voice saying to him, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? And he said, Who are you, Lord? And he said, I am Jesus, whom you are persecuting. But rise and enter the city, and you will be told what you are to do. The men who were traveling with him stood speechless, hearing the voice, but seeing no one. Saul rose from the ground, and although his eyes were open, he saw nothing. So they led him by the hand and brought him into Damascus. And for three days he was without sight, and neither ate nor drank. So here Saul is breathing threats and murder against the disciples of Jesus. But something stops him short. There is a light and a voice from heaven, and he hears the words that probably echoed in his head for the rest of his life. Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? Who are you, Lord? I am Jesus, whom you're persecuting. Something happens to Saul in that moment. We know it does because he walks into Damascus, but he doesn't start persecuting Christians. Now, for one, he can't see. It's kind of an impediment. But it's not that he can't eat and drink. He refuses to eat and drink. And we learn from what God says to Ananias that he is praying. wonder what those prayers were like. Have you ever thought about that? Here is a man who is so on fire for God that he is prepared to bring people bound back to Jerusalem for practicing the faith in a wrong way. But now, 
He realizes that everything he's been doing has been going a thousand miles an hour in the wrong direction. I've been doing it all wrong. I've made a mess of my work for the Lord. Suddenly, he's humbled. He is praying. He is ashamed. He will not eat. And so when that happens, I want you to notice what Jesus wants him to hear. Look in Acts 9 and verse 15. But the Lord said to him, Go, this is Ananias, Go, for he is a chosen instrument of mine to carry my name before the Gentiles and kings and the children of Israel, for I will show him how much he must suffer for the sake of my name. So Ananias departed and entered the house, and laying his hands on him, he said, Brother Saul, the Lord Jesus who appeared to you on the road by which you came has sent me that you may regain your sight and be filled with the Holy Spirit. And immediately something like scales fell from his eyes, and he regained his sight. Then he rose and was baptized, and taking food, he was strengthened. For some days he was with the disciples at Damascus, and immediately he proclaimed Jesus in the synagogues, saying, He is the Son of God. I want you to notice something, because this is important. Ananias is going to tell Paul, guess what this means for you? I'm going to show you how much you must suffer for the sake of the name you've been persecuting. And, and Paul does not say, wait a minute, suffer? Ah, get out of here. Paul does not say baptized. Why would I want to be baptized? Instead, everything Ananias says, he is ready to do. And immediately, he's ready to eat, and he's ready to get to work. He's ready to preach. Suddenly, his life is completely turned around because at one point, his heart is broken. He sees, I've been doing it all wrong. Sometimes we're chugging along in life and we just don't realize that we may be going in the wrong direction. And it will take times where everything stops and we are upset or devastated or broke to finally say, maybe I need to reconsider the direction of my life. It may be that God in those moments uses our broken hearts to steer us back to what's right. Now all of these men what they show us, everybody we've been talking about so far this morning, shows us that when we have been doing wrong, when we realize we're going to lose it all, or we see we've lost our connection to God, or we realize we've been doing it all wrong, what God wants is in those moments for us to repent and to come back to Him. Our hearts are broken, but there is opportunity here for change. The iron is hot when our hearts are broken. So now, we are ready to go back to 2 Corinthians 7, where we began. Let's go there. The question then that remains is why is it that some broken hearts lead to good things and some don't? We've had that experience. I can look back on my life and, and see a handful of times where I've had really bad things happen to me, times where I say that was a real low point, or even conversations that I would say, this is all my fault, but it was, it was the most painful conversation of my life. Yet not all of those low moments for me have meant good things. Not all of them have brought anything productive. So the question we're really asking is the question Paul is addressing in our text, 2 Corinthians chapter 7. The question is, what's the difference between worldly grief and godly grief? Between a broken heart that goes nowhere and a broken heart that leads to repentance. So let's read 2 Corinthians 7, beginning in verse 8. 
For even if I made you grieve with my letter, I do not regret it, though I did regret it. For I see that that letter grieved you, though only for a while. As it is, I rejoice, not because you were grieved, but because you were grieved into repenting. For you felt a godly grief, so that you suffered no loss through us. For godly grief produces a repentance that leads to salvation without regret, whereas worldly grief produces death. For see what earnestness this godly grief has produced in you, but also what eagerness to clear yourselves, what indignation, what fear, what longing, what zeal, what punishment. At every point you have proved yourselves innocent in the matter. So although I wrote to you, it was not for the sake of the one who did the wrong, nor for the sake of the one who suffered the wrong, but in order that your earnestness for us might be revealed to you in the sight of God. Paul stresses that godly grief produces repentance. It leads to change. Now, I wish we could know more about the exact situation that's described here where he talks about the letter he wrote and how it made them upset and the things they did to change what Paul had written about. We don't know a lot about that, but we can still learn a lot from this text. Now, first of all, what Paul says, the difference between worldly and godly grief is, I'm going to call it productive regret. Productive regret. See, all of the men are sorry in these situations we've talked about, but They all wish it hadn't happened, but not all of their regret goes anywhere. Haven't you had that in your experience where you had things that you wish hadn't happened the way they happened, but it doesn't really lead anywhere? It doesn't do any good? You just kind of say, oh, oh well, just the way it goes. See, that's regret, but it's not productive. It doesn't build anything. It doesn't change anything. And I will present for your consideration the case of Peter and Judas. Remember, Peter and Judas both regret how they let Jesus down in those pivotal moments. Judas has regret, and he tries to bring the money back, but the the chief priest won't have it, and so he throws the money down, and he goes and hangs himself. That's regret, but it's not productive. It doesn't go anywhere good. Whereas Peter has regret, he weeps bitterly, but he doesn't give up on the Lord. He doesn't kill himself. In fact, in Acts 2, Peter is at the forefront. He is ready for what God is doing next because his regret has led him to try to make some things right and do better in the future. So look at verse 10 with me. Verse 10 says, For godly grief produces a repentance that leads to salvation without regret, whereas worldly grief produces death. Productive regret says, I have to make this right. What do I need to do to make this right? If we have the attitude that says, I'm sorry, but there's nothing I can do about it, then our regret is not going to take us very far. Our broken heart is not going to lead us anywhere. We need productive regret. Second, we need humility. In all of these situations that we've talked about this morning, all the kings, Acts 2, Acts 9, You have people who have gotten, if you'll pardon the expression, too big for their britches. And it is telling that especially in the case of the kings, when they finally do change, it is described as as humiliating themselves. They humble themselves before God. Because suddenly they realize God is in control and not me. Look in verse 7 of 2 Corinthians 7. In verse 7 it says, Not only by his coming, but also by the comfort with which he was comforted by you, as he told us of your longing, your mourning, your zeal for me, that I rejoiced still more. Longing and mourning. These are the attributes of true repentance. We're sorry for what we've done. It's not something we wish away. It's not something where we say, oh, you guys are making too big a deal about this. Longing and mourning when we have sinned. 
Longing and mourning when we have made decisions that led us to the place that we are. Longing and mourning when it's my dumb financial choices that lead to my financial problems. Longing and mourning when I see that I am guilty. Part of humility is saying there are no excuses when I have done wrong. That it is nobody's fault but mine. I am going to take the blame because I am guilty. You see that in these examples. But part of humility in these situations is to say, I'm willing to do whatever it takes to get out of this situation. That's the productive regret that says, I'm not too good to do whatever it takes. Like David, we can simply say, I've sinned against the Lord. There is also in godly grief what we're going to call earnestness. Look again at verse 11. Verse 11, it says, For see what earnestness this godly grief has produced in you, but also what eagerness to clear yourselves, what indignation, what fear, what longing, what zeal, what punishment. At every point you proved yourselves innocent in the matter. This is the spirit that says, Whatever it takes, I'm willing to do. I will attack my recovery and go forward from this situation with passion. I see how much I could lose I see how much I need to change. I'm willing to go forward with an earnestness and a zeal that is required. That's what we see when Ahab is grieving. That's what we see when Manasseh is cleaning out the temple. That's what we see when David is writing the psalm. That's what we see when the Jews are saying, what shall we do? And then they're eagerly baptized. That's what we see when Paul is willing to be baptized, immediately goes out and starts preaching. It is the idea, you're not going to keep me from doing what's right. There is an earnestness that says, whatever my part in this is, my heart is broken, but I'm not giving up. Now, it may be that we look at our broken hearts and we say, you know what? This is not my fault. What somebody did to me is not my fault. The question, though, is still, are we going to take our broken heart and wallow in it? Or are we going to move forward with productive regret and humility and earnestness? Are we going to push forward and say, how am I going to grow from this situation? And finally, the difference here is also expectations. I want you to look with me again at verse 11. Verse 11 says, See what earnestness this godly grief has produced in you. Also what eagerness to clear yourselves, what indignation, what fear, what longing, what zeal, what punishment. At every point you proved yourselves innocent in the matter. The passion to do the right thing, prove ourselves innocent, is what we're talking about here. Godly grief, in terms of expectations, means I am primarily concerned with being right with God, not with how I look to other people. So here is David. Might look bad to other people. I don't care. I have sinned against the Lord. I've spent a lot of time with people who have had their hearts broken. That's part of the nature of the work that I do. All of them are deeply upset. And they grieve and they cry for what they've gone through. But very often, in their moments of brokenheartedness, there is a time of self-evaluation. And we all do this. We think about our lives and we think about what we've done, whether something needs to change. 
And particularly when, I have been, when I've had the experience of being with people who realize their sin and their weakness and the consequences of their sin. I've seen a couple of different kinds of reactions. One kind of reaction is that people are ready to get to work. They set no terms on it. They say whatever it takes. They make no excuses. This is not somebody else's fault. I did it. They're energetic. They're eager to make this work. They say things like, I have to make this right. But I've also seen a different kind of person. Some people are upset, but they're unwilling to change. They say things like, you guys are making too big a deal out of this. You just need to get over it. I shouldn't have to give up my computer. Why can't I go hang out at the bar anymore? I don't want to end it with her. That's outrageous. They make excuses for their behavior. They blame other people. Their efforts are half-hearted. And so I can say and I feel with confidence that I have seen in person the difference between worldly and godly grief. Everyone's upset, but it doesn't always lead to good places. So what's the point? Here's the point. We're going to go through hard times. And so will our loved ones. We're going to get upset. We're going to have our hearts broken. We're going to have people hurt us. We're going to have trouble in our finances and trouble in our health, trouble in our families. Sometimes we're going to have trouble because we have sinned against God and against people. And my point is, how are you and I going to use those broken hearts? How are we going to use those moments of clarity? How are we going to use those times of difficulty to draw closer to God and to do more of what is right? Will we use them as an opportunity to change our lives? Will we use them as opportunities to own our mistakes and turn things around, to save our marriages, to save our children? Or will we ignore the warnings that come when we're upset? And I also want to say, as we deal with those close to us, who sometimes have those kinds of things in their lives, it's important for us to remember hitting rock bottom can help us. It can be good for us. Broken hearts can be molded and changed. Will we let our broken hearts produce real change? That's the question. Would you pray with me about it? Our God and Father, we thank you so much for this time that you've given us to open your word together to think about this important idea. Father, sometimes our hearts are broken. Sometimes we encounter difficulty in life, things that are beyond our strength. And I pray that you'll help us, Father, and work in us so that in those moments we can use those things to draw closer to you and to your will for us. We thank you, Father, for loving us enough to be with us even in our distress, to receive us back when we lose our way. And Father, I pray that you'll give us the clarity that we need to see ourselves rightly and to help others to see themselves rightly. Father, we thank you for these examples in your word, and we thank you, Father, for the opportunity that we have to be your children, and I pray that you'll help us to continue to keep our hearts tender to you 
and to the circumstances of life that can sometimes awaken us to problems we have that we don't realize. I pray your blessings on our people. Be with us as a congregation. I pray that you will help us as we deal with heartache and struggles. I pray that you'll continue to watch over us. In Jesus' name, amen. There might be someone here this morning who needs to respond to the invitation of the gospel. If you're ready to turn your life around, to give your life to the Lord Jesus, have your sins washed away, you can do exactly what those Jews on Pentecost did, to have the remission of your sins. And if you're ready to take that gift that God has given in His Son, Jesus, the blood that's there to cleanse your sins, if you're ready to do that this morning, we invite you to come to the front as we stand and sing to encourage you.